BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Many see Silicon Valley Congressman Ro Khanna as a rising star in the Democratic Party, especially those on the left. He co-chaired Bernie Sanders' national campaign and is a big advocate for progressive causes like raising the minimum wage and Medicare for all. Congressman Khanna joins us to discuss the recent turmoil in Washington, including the impeachment trial of Donald Trump and what's ahead for 2021. And later, with mounting pressure from parents, health experts, and politicians to reopen schools for in-person learning, we'll get an update on how Bay Area school districts are responding. That's all ahead on Forum, right after this news. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Scott Schaefer. And as you might have heard, longtime forum host Michael Krasny has retired. Mina Kim has been named the permanent host of the statewide 10 to 11 a.m. hour. And eventually, we'll find a permanent new host for the 9 a.m. hour. But for now, we'll be bringing you lots of different voices and perspectives in this first hour. And in that regard, we're happy to have back with us South Bay Congressman Ro Khanna. Since getting elected in 2016, Kana has become a leading voice in the Progressive Caucus in Congress. He co-chaired Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign last year and more recently has been highly critical of the app Robinhood for allowing hedge funds to continue trading while blocking ordinary users from the site. We'll talk about all those things and more. Congressman Kana, welcome back to Forum. Scott, thanks for having me back on. So I know you're in D.C. today, and uh, we're now six weeks out from the January 6th attack at the Capitol. Uh, The Senate has just acquitted Donald Trump. What's the mood back there now? There's still uh, sadness and anxiety. The Capitol building is like a fortress, uh, and it's really unfortunate the distance that's been created between the government and people. I mean, you literally have barbed wire fence uh, around the whole complex. Uh, You have hundreds of Uh, troops uh, outside. Uh, As a member of Congress, uh, we're all going through metal detectors to go on the House floor, which is reasonable, but it makes you sad that uh, there's such distrust even among uh, colleagues about their physical safety. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because in the days after that, there were some speculation, maybe even accusations that some of the more conservative members of uh, on the other side of the aisle may have given tours of the Capitol the day before to some of the extremists. I don't know if that was ever fully investigated, but boy, that's really a toxic workplace. It really is with a few of these uh, members. Now, I don't make that accusation broadly. I think there are still many, many Republicans in the House who I have ideological disagreements with, but who uh, I can meet with, I can work with, I can co-sponsor legislation. But there are a few members uh, who have uh, been accused of accosting uh, people like uh, Representative Cory Bush. I mean, Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene apparently accosted her in the hallway and Cory Bush felt unsafe. Uh, there are members uh, who allegedly uh, gave tours or information to the mob that stormed the Capitol. Those have to be investigated as they would be investigated in any workplace. 
You know, there was some thought, maybe some hope that after all of this passed and the impeachment was was beyond, uh, was done with, that there might be some, I don't know, some uh, the danger of that extreme partisanship might subside. And yet you have Lindsey Graham just uh, earlier this week suggesting that maybe Kamala Harris could be impeached if Republicans take back the Senate. I mean, how, do, how does the temperature get turned down? I, I you know, My wife was talking to me about that, and I I hadn't even heard about Kamala Harris being impeached. Uh, it seems so absurd. I mean, what on what grounds? And it is really unfortunate. I mean, we're going to go in a country where basically uh, if the opposing party is in power in the White House and Congress in a different party, that we're going to impeach every time. My sense of what's going to turn this down is we've got to move beyond Trump. Unfortunately, the acquittal in the Senate makes it harder to do that. But I hope that there are more Republicans like Liz Cheney, uh, like Mitt Romney, who realize that casting their lot in with uh, Donald Trump uh, is not politically smart or even like Nikki Haley. Yeah, it's, I, I'm sure there are a lot of Democrats who never thought they'd be holding up Liz Cheney as a model. Uh, but she had the courage of her convictions and, and obviously may pay the price, or it seems like she may. But let's talk about legislation. The COVID uh, relief package, uh, $1.9 trillion, uh, is uh, now on the table. What's the status of that? It's going to pass the House in the next few weeks. The uh, biggest things that it does is it's going to give every American a check, $1,400 check. Uh, if you are uh, a couple uh, that is uh, making under $250,000, uh, more or less, uh, it is going to provide um, extraordinary relief for uh, working families with children. Uh, and some studies show it would cut the child poverty rate in half. Uh, with the generous benefits, and it's going to provide money which California needs, state and local uh, governments need to, to help with the vaccination process. The, the biggest thing that progressives are pushing for is the $15 minimum wage. And the reason, Scott, is that this is the one thing that's a structural change. It's not just a one-time check. It's changing the law uh, for years and giving a raise to working families. That's going to pass the House, but we're uh, waiting with abated breath on the Senate parliamentarian ruling uh, whether it can pass through reconciliation in the Senate. It seems like Joe Biden is signaling that, well, it might not make it. Uh, do you feel like he's giving up too quickly, too easily? He should not give up. But my understanding, and I was actually talking to people who understand the Senate rules, is the decision actually rests with Vice President Kamala Harris. The Constitution says that the vice president is the presiding officer of the Senate. The parliamentarian uh, just gives an advisory opinion. I mean, why should an unelected parliamentarian decide the fate of millions of Americans and whether they get a raise? And in the past, actually, in 1975, Nelson Rockefeller uh, famously disregarded the parliamentarian to change the filibuster tr threshold from uh, 67 votes to 60 votes. So uh, I do think that we should make it every procedural possibility on the table for getting this done. Although quite apart from the parliamentarian, you've got a couple of Democratic senators, uh, Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who say they're not for a $15 minimum wage. But Scott, I don't think they'll vote against the final passage. So I've had to vote for a lot of bills in Congress that I don't love. Uh, I didn't love the uh, entire first CARES Act because I thought it gave away too much money to corporations and to uh, to the, gave too much uh, discretion to Mnuchin, but I voted for it because of all the good that was there and made a statement that I was opposed to certain parts. I think push comes to shove, 
senators will all do the same thing. They're not going to stand there and vote against President Biden's first uh, major initiative. They may uh, oppose the uh, minimum wage increase. But let's let's create the opportunity for having a package uh, that that forces people to, to vote up or down on the package itself. And how is it uh, how is it tiered? I mean, is it uh, is it phased in over several years? And and what about the argument that, you know, hey, $15 an hour in West Virginia is a lot different from $15 an hour in San Francisco, where the cost of living is so much higher? It is phased in uh, two things. The uh, RNG Dubé, an economist, well-known uh, labor economist, has studied the impact. And he says that if you have a, a minimum wage at up to 80 percent of the national median wage, national median wage in this country is $19. Uh, then there are no uh, significant negative employment effects. And we've seen actually national retailers have national wages, right? Amazon doesn't say we're going to do $15 in uh, California, but less in West Virginia. Uh, And Walmart, which isn't at $15, or Target, uh, they don't have different wages. So uh, there is an administrative simplicity to having $15. And $15 is, in my view, the floor. I think you can justify it around the country. Now, in the Bay Area, we probably need higher uh, but I think fifteen dollars as a national standard is pretty reasonable. And what is it? Seven twenty-five right now? It's seven twenty-five. I mean, it's unbelievable. It, the uh, until uh, nineteen sixty-eight, the minimum wage kept in line with productivity. If you uh, were producing something, uh, as that went up, the product your productivity went up, wages went up. That relationship was severed in nineteen sixty-eight. Had wage minimum wage been in line with the productivity of workers? Uh, it would actually be $23 today. So it's important to realize that this is not some act of charity or some act of uh, uh, redistribution. This is saying in a market economy, if people are producing $23 worth of uh, value, why aren't they at least being paid $15? And Congressman Khan, I believe today you're introducing legislation which has a clever acronym, uh, the Cheaters Act, which stands, I guess, for stop corporations and hire earners from avoiding taxes and enforce rules strictly. I can see why you use the acronym. Uh, (laughs) What's the intention of that law? It's actually uh, very simple. Uh, I didn't realize this until I read Larry Summers and Natasha Sutter's paper, but there are uh, about $1 trillion uh, on the table over 10 years of uh, revenue that simply isn't collected by enforcing the law. This doesn't mean change the law or raise taxes. But the 1% and a lot of the corporations are actually not complying with the existing law, and the IRS doesn't have the staff to do sufficient audits or to enforce the law. So what our bill says is do more audits for the very wealthy, do more audits for corporations that aren't paying tax, and enforce the existing law. And by the way, if you do that, a moderate economists like Larry Summers, not a progressive, says you can raise $1.2 trillion over 10 years. So this is a low-hanging fruit that I think the entire Democratic Party and probably some Republicans could get behind. Well, and, uh, am I mistaken? Or I seem to remember hearing that the number of overall audits has gone way down over the years, but the number of audits of sort of small-time taxpayers, you know, re- relatively low-income earners, uh, has gone up, uh, even as the high-income earner audits have uh, have gone down. You're right uh, that that has happened. I don't have the statistics up the top of my head on uh, the low-income earners, but I know that uh, you have all these audits for people taking too many deductions for the earned income tax credit, where suddenly the IRS is concerned that uh, maybe two people who are divorced are both claiming a child as a dependent. Uh, I, I'd rather that we not uh, put all our resources in that kind of enforcement and go after the 
the big taxpayers and enforce the law. And this is uh, not saying that we're going to uh, raise wages and uh, taxes in a punitive way. It's simply saying they ought to comply with what the law is and the, there ought to be enforcement for it. What impact, if any, would it have on small businesses? It wouldn't have an impact on small businesses other than to say that the focus of the uh, enforcement shouldn't be on small businesses, but should be on the large corporations and the extraordinary wealthy. Now, it would have an impact on uh, businesses that were used to uh, have wealthy individuals pass on uh, their profits so that they uh, didn't disclose this as personal gains. But again, you're talking about people who are worth 50 million, 100 million dollars who are in the top 1%. And do you have any Republican co-sponsors at this point? We don't, unfortunately. Now, we didn't have uh, a lot of time because I wanted to get this out early so that it's something that the Biden administration uh, would consider. Uh, typically, we do more work to get Republicans and Democrats on board. But I'm optimistic uh, that we may be able to get some Republicans on board. We have gotten a lot of people in all the different wings of the Democratic Party on board. And my hope is that this is something that a Senator Manchin or more moderate Democrats could support as well. All right. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Congressman Ro Khanna. If you'd like to join us, give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Scott Schaefer, and we will continue our conversation with Congressman Khanna in just a minute. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today in this first hour, and we're talking with Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna. He's in his third term representing the 17th Congressional District, which includes parts of Silicon Valley. He's a member of the House Oversight Committee, House Agriculture Committee, and the House Armed Services Committee. If you'd like to join us and ask the congressman a question, give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866 866- 733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Congressman, I want to ask you about Robin Hood, and I don't mean the fictional character, uh, but the app, uh, which describes itself as a commission-free stock trading and investment tool. Uh, it's lured a lot of people, a lot of young, inexperienced traders into the market, and some of whom have found themselves deep in debt. Um, what are your thoughts about that? It seems to be a darling of Silicon Valley. It's got an $8 billion valuation, or it did recently. Well, first of all, there needs to be far more disclosure and transparency. Uh, what happened uh, was unacceptable that Robinhood basically uh, stopped uh, retail trading uh, when many uh, retail investors wanted to buy and could have made uh, money, and hedge funds were uh, continued to uh, be able to sell uh, their stocks or buy their stocks. Uh, they, the reason is that they may not have had the capital requirement, uh, but then they need to disclose to their uh, customers 
what capital requirements that they that they have and tell them that there may be times that they can't complete transactions. There was absolutely no disclosure. They also need to have more capital reserves. More broadly, though, we do need to look at regulations uh, to make sure that uh, retail investors are protected and that they're on a level playing field as hedge fund uh, managers. Well, in fact, you were quoted, I think, about Robinhood, but it was may have been a more, more general saying, and I'm quoting here, the era of unregulated speculation needs to end. Um, you represent a lot of these companies in Silicon Valley, or at least they're in your district. Uh, what does that mean exactly, and, and, and how far does it extend? Are you, applying, are you saying that Facebook, Twitter, Google, you know, a lot of these tech companies need to be reined in with uh, tougher regulation? Yes, they do. They do. I mean, in, in the case of Twitter, Facebook, uh, they need to have much tougher regulation on privacy. Uh, the idea that they can capture people's data and then construct profiles and then target uh, them with uh, conspiracy theories is very problematic. I mean, I read somewhere that almost 64% of people on QAnon on Facebook actively received a recommendation from Facebook to join those groups. Mm. So there needs to be a serious look at protecting our privacy uh, and regulations against speech that uh, incites violence that isn't protected under the First Amendment. And then there needs to be serious antitrust uh, enforcement uh, that uh, is called for. Uh, more broadly, when it comes to Wall Street, there needs to be uh, a looking at, uh, look at regulations that are uh, going to uh, perhaps deter speculation and idle capital. I'm for a financial transaction tax. At least in Silicon Valley, you have innovation that is uh, producing uh, a great value. Uh, when you look at Wall Street, I think it's not just about the efficient allocation of capital. You have a lot of uh, capital that is sitting idle that would be better deployed uh, to reindustrialize America. And we need to look at the overfinancialization of our economy. All right, let's go to the phones. And again, the number, if you'd like to talk with Congressman Kana, 866-733-6786. And let's go to Mauricio in San Bruno. Welcome. Hey, how are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, so I have a quick, I have a quick comment uh, for Rokana. Uh, it's uh, Mr. Rokana, if you could please run for governor of California. <laughs> <laughs> I'm urging you because I, I, the way you conduct yourself and the way you like, just you know, overall, I've been following you since like like TYT when you were on there. So I mean, like I've been following you for a while. So I know that you would be a great leader. Well, I was going to wait a little while to talk about the recall, Congressman Khanna, but uh, there you have it. We've got a question about it. I assume that that's what he's alluding to. Um, and, and you've been pretty outspoken, saying that Democrats need to stay united and not put up a candidate on that ballot if the recall qualifies. What are your thoughts uh, about that? And, uh, you know, how's the governor doing? Well, first of all, I appreciate uh, Rachel's uh, kind comments. Uh, um, I feel like I can be most effective uh, on the federal level, partly I've cared deeply about stopping the war on Yemen and am very involved with the Biden administration, all that. And a lot of these issues about the Internet privacy and Bill of Rights are things I can make a mark on. I do think that this recall is being fueled by uh, Republicans who are looking for a backdoor to oust a Democratic governor. And so I'm 100 percent behind uh, Gavin Newsom in the recall. Do I agree with every decision? No. Uh, but it's a tough time to be governor uh, with a pandemic. And I think that uh, Gavin, under the circumstances, is doing uh, his best. And certainly 
is better than anyone the Republicans uh, would put up. What about, though, if it looks like the recall is going to pass and then voters, you know, that passes and then voters only have Republicans on the ballot? I mean, that wouldn't be a good scenario from your point of view. No, and uh, I don't think that the recall uh, would pass. Uh, In my sense, there are going to be probably some uh, Democrats uh, on the ballot. It's not going to be me. And I don't think anyone uh, who really cares about uh, the Democratic Party and having uh, a sense of uh, solidarity at this time of challenge uh, would throw their uh, hat in, uh, into the ring. If Javier Becerra is confirmed as health secretary, which it looks like he will be now that Democrats are in control of the Senate, uh, you know, the governor is going to need to appoint a new attorney general. Is that something you'd be interested in? No. I mean, obviously, it's a, a real honor uh, for anyone to be uh, considered for California attorney general. But my passion has really been at the federal level. I'm very deeply involved in foreign policy. I've been involved in spreading technology to rural America and black and brown communities. You probably couldn't do that as attorney general of California. So uh, I'm very happy uh, in the role I am. I was considered an honor to be considered for Senate, which was a federal position and did express interest in there. But but my passion is really uh, at the federal level. All right, let's look at some listener comments. Here's one. Uh, is there a way to mitigate the negative impact of the increase in a minimum wage for uh, small local businesses that operate in lower cost of living areas? We sort of touched on this, but by providing a tax rebate to the employers, reduce their operating costs so that having the minimum wage increase does not force them to raise their prices. Thoughts? Yes. And, and those are actually, if you look at the House bill, there are provisions uh, for small businesses certain carve-outs, certain tax rebates. But that is all uh, very reasonable in terms of uh, figuring out uh, the the exact policy uh, so that this is not impacting uh, businesses with under 50 employees or that their tax rebates, uh, tax credits to offset that. Uh, I I think that's a very reasonable point. And Dave writes something, again, we sort of touched on earlier, instead of a $15 an hour wage, uh, make it set to the percentage of the county's medium family wage. That would be far more fair. Have any states done that where they have sort of regional? I know that was discussed here in California, you know, say, have a slightly lower minimum wage, hourly wage for the Central Valley or the Inland Empire than the Bay Area. I'm not sure if any state has done that. I just think it's so administratively difficult. There's a reason, again, that Amazon and Walmart and Target don't do that. I mean, why don't they have different wage scales for every region that they're in. It's just it's administratively complex. Imagine how complex that would be uh, in a country. Uh, and so uh, if, if we were talking about a, a minimum wage that uh, was outrageous in uh, lower cost of living areas, I think that argument may make sense. But my, my belief is that this is a floor uh, and that what you probably need is a higher minimum wage in places like the Bay Area that are higher cost of living. And Richard asks, and this is about the stimulus, the COVID stimulus, will the federal aid be taxable? Won't a lot of this money come back to the government as tax revenue? The federal aid uh, would uh, generate uh, tax revenue. That's a great point. I mean, especially uh, the aid to state and local governments that is spent or uh, the money that goes to individuals that will be spent that ultimately becomes then uh, someone else's earnings that then gets taxed. And the important point now is that we're in a low inflation low interest rate environment. Uh, This is the time that we need the spending to help people and avoid more structural damage to the economy. I think what the what that listener was referring to, though, is would the would the direct payments to individuals be taxed as income? 
I do think it's taxed. I mean, it counts. You mean the checks, the, yeah, the stimulus yeah, checks? I think yeah. it counts towards your your income. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it depends so. on what income level you are. But my understanding is that that is taxed. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question, a big picture politics question. The Democrats came very close to losing their majority in the House in 2020. Uh, could yet happen in uh, 2022. And after the election, I know I suspect you were on that call with the caucus uh, and some of the moderate Democrats who had beaten Republicans in purple districts were reportedly yelling things like, uh, you know, friends, uh, phrases like uh, defund the police, the new uh, Green New Deal, that they had co- nearly cost them their seats, nearly cost them the majority, and that they were urging sort of a more, you know, tug more toward the center where more voters are. What, what do you what do you think of that uh, that debate? I think it's an exaggerated debate. The reality is there are very few voices in the Democratic Party uh, that have uh, publicly said we ought to defund uh, police. I certainly have never said that. I but it's a perception. That's a perception that voters have, some voters. Yeah, and so the question then is, if there, that is the language of activism, you can't police activism and you can't, one, enjoy the benefits of activism. I mean, my view is we never would have won Pennsylvania uh, or uh, Wisconsin or Michigan if it weren't for the Black Lives Matter movement and other organizations that mobilized record turnout. Uh, among uh, African-American voters, or in Georgia, for that matter. So you can't say, okay, well, we like the activism, we like the voter turnout, uh, but we don't like the exact language that they're using, and so we're going to give them democratic talking points so that they can phrase language in ways that politicians phrase language. I mean, that's uh, uh, unreasonable. What I think is you need good leaders, and uh, Joe Biden showed he was capable of doing it, who can speak to activism and yet express things in ways that uh, that appeal to a broad range of the country. And that's the skill of a, uh, of a politician. And so what I talk about is, well, we need to budget our values when it comes to law enforcement. Of course, we need to respect officers. They uh, do an enormous service to our, uh, our community. And of course, we need to pay them uh, fairly. But we also need to have police budgets that uh, aren't excessive and that are uh, appropriately funding social services and education. And I, I think it's just how you talk about some of these issues. We're talking with Congressman Ro Khanna. He represents the 17th Congressional District, which covers parts of Silicon Valley, the South Bay. If you'd like to talk with him, uh, join our conversation. It's 866-733-6786. And let's go to Wynn in Menlo Park. Welcome. Thanks. Um, In this time of a pandemic, there's no question that Congress has done a good job and must continue to support the economy in trying to get the pandemic under control and help the millions of people who need help. But aside from a few years in the Clinton administration, Congress seems to have a a deficit every year, and to the point now where the debt is in the $30 trillion range. Are we ever going to have a time when we can focus on the the, uh, deficit and get it under some level of control, and how are we ever going to do that? You know, it's funny, Congressman, because uh, caller, this is such a become such a partisan issue. Republicans don't seem to care about the debt until they're no longer in the White House or don't control the Congress. Um, on the other hand, you know, when when the debt did go away when Bill Clinton was president, we saw this explosive growth in the economy. So interest rates are very low. So it's you know, in that sense, a good time to borrow money. But you know, what are your thoughts about that? Well, first, I want to acknowledge Wynn saying that Congress has done a good job. I don't think I've heard that in my four years in Congress, so that's <laughs> a uh, that's a first. Uh, but uh, I, I I think debt debt and deficits do matter. I'm not one of these people who thinks so. Oh, it 
just never matters. Eventually, uh, you have to pay, whether that's in the form of uh, deflating your currency, which, by the way, uh, can hurt uh, those who have uh, ordinary savings and aren't in the market, uh, or uh, whether it is uh, because you ultimately have to have more interest payments as interest rates rise. So what I but I don't think that the time uh, to be uh, focused on that is when we're in a crisis with millions of people out of work and uh, facing foreclosure or facing uh, uh, eviction. Uh, what we ought to do is get past this crisis uh, and then uh, be responsible. And part of uh, paying the debt means we don't get into these bad wars, uh, $6 trillion spent, uh, and that we don't have these massive tax cuts, the Bush and Trump tax cuts uh, that really created, created this situation. I mean, to me, those are the three things post-Clinton that took place. We had the Bush tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts, and a number of foreign wars. And that's the structural cause of the deficit. Some would add prescription drug benefits into that as well. Sure. I mean, I, I, I mean, I support prescription drug benefits. I'm sure you can pick things that I support that are a part of it. But uh, if we just reverse the Bush tax cuts the, uh, and, and the Trump tax cuts, and, and if we stopped uh, the, this overseas and in, in entanglement, we would save a lot of money. And then on prescription drugs, I think if we allowed Medicare to negotiate, and of course, I'm for Medicare for all, but if we went to that type of system, I think it would also reduce federal costs. All right, Wynn, thanks very much for the call. Uh, we've got some other comments from listeners. Clarice asks, is there a way to stop the broadcasters like Sinclair, Fox, and OANN from spreading misinformation in the regions where they are so dominant? Uh, you've talked about Facebook earlier, but uh, this would seem like a, a more difficult task to rein, rein in broadcasters. Uh, Clarice, it's difficult, whether it's broadcasters or social media, because we have a First Amendment uh, that uh, uh, the Supreme Court unanimously basically has found uh, it does not give the government the ability to regulate falsity. And the reason is that we uh, think that it's a dangerous precedent for the government to be the arbiter uh, of truth. So what can we do? I think we have to get at it uh, with monopoly, uh, going after monopolies. I mean, the danger is not uh, that uh, that just that these platforms are spreading misinformation. It's that there are no alternatives to them. Uh, and so I think if we increase competition uh, that, and if we uh, make sure that people aren't being targeted based on their profiles, uh, we can get at some of this misinformation issue. But it's a, it's a huge issue and it's a very hard problem with the First Amendment to solve. I want to ask you about the economy in the Bay Area because uh, the Milken Institute came out with a study this week showing that the tech hubs of San Francisco and San Jose fell dramatically in terms of uh, this year's ranking of U.S. cities of economic in terms of economic performance. Um, I think uh, San Jose was number five, San Francisco number one. Last year they fell respectively to 24 and 22. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, tech as an economic driver? And does California and the Bay Area, do we need to do something different to make sure that uh, those economies are, are healthy? Tech is an enormous economic driver uh, for our region and for uh, the nation and the world. I mean, uh, 90 percent of the S&P growth over the last five years has been driven uh, by technology. Uh, you have tech jobs paying twice the medium wage. And we still are one of the most innovative places in the world. We've got Apple, Google leading in artificial intelligence, quantum computing. But we have challenges that I would argue three basic ones. Housing, we've got to create more affordable housing. You can't have $700,000 be the median price for the wage. 
the SALT deduction. We need to get that back, and we're working on that in Congress. Otherwise, you're really disincentivizing young people from coming here and better public transportation so you're not stuck in commutes. Now, I think COVID in some ways may rebalance the economy uh, where people now uh, are free to work remotely, and maybe we'll put some... uh, alleviate some of the pressure on home prices in the Bay Area. Quick question. We're getting to the end, and I realize it may not have a simple answer, but Nancy Pelosi uh, is speaker, as you know, of the House, and she agreed to step down, I believe, at the end of 2022. Uh, should should she, uh, w- will you be joining a chorus to have her stay, or is it time for new leadership? Well, I think she's been a remarkable speaker. She's been an extraordinary uh, public servant, and uh, she obviously has enjoyed my support, but she did say, I think, that it was four years that she was going to do. And uh, I do think uh, having new voices emerge is always healthy for a democracy, as P- Speaker Pelosi herself has said. It brings renewal. It brings new vision. Uh, so we can uh, be extraordinarily grateful for her leadership and yet still uh, recognize the need for, for new leaders. All right. Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back... Schools, when are they going to reopen? Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. 